We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're jumping ahead in our study, uh, and it's intentional because we're doing something different in the life of our church. Since the history of this church began, we've only done communion once a month, at the first Sunday of the month. But starting in May, this very month, we are now going to do communion twice a month, and on the first and third Sundays of the month. And so uh, part of the message is to explain why, and uh, we believe it's a means of grace, and that if truly God is giving grace to us and strengthening us and, and helping us grow in our Christian life, then we need more of that, not less of that. And so uh, this passage in particular talks about the Lord's presence, the communion and fellowship with the body uh, as we commune with him. So give attention to the word of God. This is really a, a warning a sobering passage for us to take in. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 1 to 22. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we take, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would open our eyes, help us to understand your word, pray that we might see Christ in it, that we might learn from this example and be sobered by it, that we would take heed and that you would keep us from stumbling. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure many of you enjoyed watching the Winter Olympics this past winter. I certainly did. And I discovered that I really enjoy the racing. 
I, you know, when the individuals compete and they're doing all these tricks in the air, like I'm worried like somebody's going to get drastically hurt when they land. And I enjoy that too. But when they're racing, I like watching that kind of competition. And in particular, the skiing, the snowboarding with the jumps, uh, and the speed, skate, the speed skating in the small rink. Um, and I recall in one of the races that I was watching, there was, it was in South Korea, and two of the South Koreans were favored to win the race. You, some of you may remember seeing this particular race, and they're flying around the track, and they get near the close, and they go for the sprint. And the two favorites, the one took out the other, and they both crashed into the wall. And this person just skates around like, and gets a medal. I mean, it was like, hey, how did, how did this happen? I mean, I was in fourth place, and now I'm in second, and I'm, you know, moving on. Um, so they're disqualified if you crash, obviously. And, you, you know, you think about that for the two people that crashed. It's four years of your life training. And then your partner takes you out, and you're DQ'd, and that's the end of your Olympic career. Very tragic. Well, I give you that by way of analogy to the end of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians that leads into chapter 10 because they're connected. You see, in Corinth, they had the Isthmian Games, which were, you know, basically like Olympic Games, and they were familiar with this idea of being DQ'd, of being disqualified. And so when Paul makes reference to this in his own life, in a world that's sustained with, with idols and idolatry and pagan worship, Paul says in chapter 9, verse 24, do you not know that in a race, all runners compete, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, DQ'd. Paul begins with chapter 10 with this historical example of Israel in their race and how most of them were DQ'd. To sober the Corinthian church and to sober Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, that we would learn from this example that the historical example of Israel and their race, their journey out of Egypt into the promised land. Paul lists all the advantages of Israel in these first four verses. So we see advantages and then apostasy. And it's like unthinkable. How do they have all these advantages? How does it lead to apostasy? But in verse, the first four verses, we have the advantages, and then we're told in verses uh, 5 to 10 of their apostasy, and then we're told of the example that we are to learn from this. So in those first four, first four verses in chapter 10, there are five all references, as that repetition is meant to grab our attention. And Paul wants us to, to take this in. And he notes, Paul refers to Israel here in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And he says, our fathers. And he's speaking mainly to a Gentile audience. So that should just teach you something right there about how we interpret Scripture and biblical theology. That here, these Gentile believers, we are grafted in, and now the Israelite fathers are our fathers. And that's the Old Testament church, that's our church. There's the people of God in the Old Testament, our fathers. Now the Gentile Christians, mainly. 
And so our fathers were all under the cloud. You can underline those alls. They're all protected from Pharaoh's army, all protected by that pillar, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, all passed through the sea, all crossed over when Pharaoh's army was drowned, and all were baptized into Moses, all experienced this baptism, this covenant solidarity with Moses as they were identified with their leader when they crossed the sea, when they went with him and crossed over in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. God provided manna from heaven, and Paul is equating this with the Corinthians eating and drinking communion with the Lord at the Lord's table, and all drank the same spiritual drink. God provided miraculous uh, water from the rock. You remember when it was struck, and the rock was Christ. And Jesus is taking their punishment, went before them and says, you strike the rock, you were the one complaining, you deserve the judgment, but I'll take the beating. And the rock was struck and water flows out. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You see, Paul wants the Corinthian church to know that Jesus was providing and delivering the Old Testament church. They had deliverance and provision, they had baptism, they had communion, they had the, and just as the Corinthians did, and just as we do, a Shady Grove Presbyterian church, but we need to learn from these advantages, glean from them, and grow from them, and not let it lead to apostasy from this bad example of the church in the Old Testament. They neglected the Lord, and in their spiritual pride, unbelief, and stubbornness, they turned these into four specific sins that were given to us twice. We're told in verse 6 and in verse 10 of example, example. And we, it's interesting, if you, if you read this passage and people want to know, how do you interpret the Old Testament? Is it mainly example or is it mainly about Jesus? And you have people that say, you know, you should never, you know, be like Moses, be like Daniel, you know, you should never teach that. And then you have others that say, it's all about Jesus, all about Jesus. What does this text teach you? It teaches you both, doesn't it? Because twice, look what it says in verse 6. These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil. We might not lust evil as they did. So it's an example. We're told in verse 10. Again, we are told... Um, where else does it say that? Uh, verse 11. These things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction. So twice we're told it's example, but then we get in verse 9. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. The Old Testament church, Paul is equating that they put Christ to the test. They were putting Jesus to the test. Jesus was the one following them. Jesus was the one providing them. He was the rock, and they put Jesus to the test. So it's all about Jesus, and yet it's all about example. It's both, both and. And so we're to learn from these four specific sins that we're not to follow after, to be sober by this. You know, because the idea, I think, was there was these strong Christians that were in Corinth and they thought if we've got the Lord's table we come and we receive communion we got everything we need and we can go and sin all we want we can go out into the community and it's a lot of churches today you come to mass you get your fill up 
you're good to go until next week and come get your fill up and then you can go be a heathen the rest of the week. And there's a lot of churches that have that subtle communication that this is where you get your little token for the week and now you can go and, and live as you like. And what Paul is, is giving some really serious sober warnings here. And he's saying with the church of the Old Testament, they had four specific sins. Grumbling, testing the Lord, sexual immorality, and idolatry. Several of those we used in the worship service already where you saw the people of God grumbling and God sent snakes. I mean, snakes that would come and bite them and kill them. And then you remember this terrible example of the golden calf. And they said, well, where's, where's this Moses? He delayed in coming down. They got impatient. They said, well, let's, let's, make, let's make a God. And, you know, Aaron says, I just, I just threw this thing in the fire and out came this calf. I don't know what happened, you know. But the people, it says, they, they ate and drank and rose up to play. And the idea was that they ate and had communion in front of this golden calf and were saying, this is the God who delivered us from Egypt. Is God pleased with that? When we worship God through some idol? No. That's blatant idolatry. And yet Paul is saying, this is what the church is doing in Corinth. And then there was... It says they rose up to play, and the idea of play was sexual immorality, fornication, porneia, pornography. And then there was just, in, in the midst of all that, it was just idolatry. And so Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, we need to learn from this example. Just because you started well doesn't mean you're going to finish well. We have to make our calling and election sure. And so Jesus says, if you abide in my word... You're truly my disciples. That's a pretty pregnant adverb, isn't it? You're truly my disciples if you abide in the word. Meaning if you don't abide in his word, then we're not truly his disciples. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. But are we following him? You see, all of Israel was in this race. They were all in the journey all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all baptized into Moses, all had the same spiritual food. They've been baptized, they got communion, drinking spiritual drink, yet two out of two million make it. Two out of two million. Joshua and Caleb made it to the promised land, and we are told in verse five, nevertheless, nevertheless. That's where you're like, everything's so good until you get to verse five, and nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's scary, isn't it? This was a wake-up to the Corinthians. They, too, have been baptized. They're taking communion. Life is good in the neighborhood. We're all good to go. My conscience doesn't bother me. What's wrong with a little meat offered to an idol? And if that's not a problem, what's wrong with a little meat offered to an idol in the temple itself and a little false worship going on? That's okay. I'm strong. I'm not doing that. I just, go to the, I just go to the movie theater. I just watch Game of Thrones. I just watch the sex scenes, but I don't really enjoy them. It's the same thing. Paul's comparing the church in the wilderness and the church in Corinth, and he's saying there's an example we have to learn from. The rock was Christ, and yet they stopped following him. 
Christ was following them. And, as they, and so now he's telling the church here in Corinth that you can't have it both ways. He's saying, don't you know that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is where we get our theology of the spiritual presence of Christ. Is this word participation is the word koinonia. And that's the idea of communion. We, the church I was at before, we would say that every time we would do communion. And it was like you had this, when you got done, you would say it. So we had a guest preacher, and it was his first time coming. And I, I had to explain him, this is what you do in this church. You know, when you get done with the bread, you say the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And when you get done with the cup, you say the cup of blessing, which we give thanks, is it not a participation in the, in the blood of Christ? So he gets up and he says, the bread that we break, is it not the body of Christ? And I went to him afterwards, I said, that was perfect Catholic theology. Because you forgot a participation in the body of Christ. If we said the bread that we break is the body of Christ, you see, the elements themselves don't change. There's nothing magical here. If the mouse gets it, the mouse doesn't get Jesus. Okay, that was the reformer's response. Does the mouse get Jesus? And for Luther, he spilled the communion juice one, or wine and he got on the floor and he licked it up because he still believed that, that Jesus was in with and around the, the, the blood and so he had to lick it up because it was the blood of Christ. We don't believe that. We believe that, that the elements don't change, but there is a communion going on. And when you go into that pagan temple and there's food offered to this idol, the idol is nothing. It is just wood. It's a structure. It's, it's either, you know, some type of, you know, thing. There's nothing there. But behind it, the spiritual element, there's, there's demons buzzing all around. And they love false worship. The elements didn't change, but there's demons all around, and if you participate in that, you are participating with demons, is what Paul's saying. And so the point is, is that the elements don't change, but behind it, Christ is present here to strengthen his people. So you can't have both. You don't come neutral to the Lord's table. You can't say, well, I'm going to have, this is not a progressive supper, folks, that I get this and then I get Deadpool when it comes out and Deadpool 2 is going to be my next feast. You don't think there's things buzzing around there? I mean, I was reading this week just on, on a thing on uh, common sense media and it was telling, it was describing uh, what this new movie's coming out is going to be like. It says the original Deadpool had nonstop graphic violence, gore, torture, sex, nudity... Oh, and there's more, swearing, drinking, drug use, and more. So it's safe to expect the same here. In other words, this won't be a kid-friendly film. Okay, this is, this is common sense media. This isn't anything Christian that's, that's, you know, it's telling you there's graphic everything going on. And they say it's not kid-friendly. I'd say it's not Christian-friendly, okay? And so you say, but I, oh, I love Marvel Comics. I just love this. Here's the thing. Each of us has to work out in our own life, what are you leaving to follow Jesus? What are you leaving? Because the, the call to the Christian life is always a leave and a cleave. So we all have to wrestle with this. 
There's all going to be things for each of us to say, you know what, my conscience doesn't go there. But it better be somewhere. I hope you're leaving something for Jesus. I hope you're saying, I can't go to that theater to see that. Where, where are you drawing the line somewhere? Or you just say, well, I'm just drinking it in. I just take it in. Well, that's what the Corinthian church was doing. They were just drinking it in because it was good for business. They would go to these business gatherings and there'd be a, a temple or there'd be a, a, a idol there. And they would say, okay, today's lunch, you know, and we're going to, and they would, they would have this temple that they would, or this idol that they would worship. And they'd say a little prayer too, but it, but it was all about the networking and meeting people. And man, if, if I say no to that and I say, I can't go to that, well, I'm going to lose all my business contacts. Because Jupiter Soter, Jupiter the Savior, is who's, you know, we've got these three libations that go on, these three drink offerings, and then it's toasted to this, this idol. But I don't really participate in that. I just, you know, I drink it, but I'm not really there. I'm just there for business. And Paul's saying, no, you're not. You're participating with demons. And so the demons haven't changed. They're still buzzing around. And we say, well, and it's not around in our culture today. Yes, it is. It's just a little harder to see. And you've got to determine where your conscience is a weak or strong brother. I remember when we were in London, and Chrissy probably remembers this, we were on a mission trip, and we went into a couple of these temples. And one of them was a Sikh temple and another Hindu type of temple. And they literally had plates, big plates with food offered to an idol. It would be a statue, porcelain statue, big plate of food. And when you came out of the temple, you remember this? They, they offered us food that had been offered to an idol. It was exactly what this whole thing, you know, it was all theoretical in my mind. And I always thought I was a strong brother. But I got to tell you, when they handed me that orange and said, here, eat, it's been offered to an idol, I had to say, you know what? Thank you, but no thanks. I discovered I'm a weak brother. Like, ah. No thanks. <laughs> That's been where I don't want to be. I don't even want to mess with that. Where are you working this out in your own heart and life? Because the reality is, is the church is drinking in a lot of worldliness. And I think it greatly affects the church. Kevin DeYoung says this. He wrote this book called A Hole in Our Holiness. And he was calling the church to really consider this issue of worldliness in the church. He says, it's one thing to describe evil or even depict it. I'd never suggest that good writing or filmmaking must avoid the subject of sin. There are many thoughtful, tasteful movies, television shows, plays, musicals, and books out there, and all the good ones usually deal with sin. Sin by itself is not the problem. The Bible is full of rank immorality. It would be simplistic and morally untenable, even unbiblical, to suggest you cannot watch sin or read about sin without sinning yourself. But the Bible never titillates with its description of sin. It never paints vice with virtue's colors. It does not entertain with evil unless to mock it. The Bible does not dull the conscience by making sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And there are no pictures of plunging necklines. We have to have a hard look at the things we choose to put in front of our faces. If there was a couple engaged in sexual activity on a couch in front of you, would you pull up a seat and watch? He says, no, that would be perverse, voyeuristic. Why is it different when people recorded it first and then you watch? What if a good-looking guy or girl barely dressed came up to the beach and said, why don't you sit on your towel right here and stare at me for a while? Would you do it? No, that's creepy. Why is it acceptable, then, he says, when the same images are blown up to the size of a three-story building? 
Would you want the Apostle Paul sitting next to you and Jesus sitting next to you while you're watching DP2? I mean, seriously. I mean, there has to be a point where we just say, you know, I gotta ch- you can't have it both ways. And what Paul's calling the Corinthian church to do is say, look, these people got DQ'd in the Old Testament because they decided that it was okay to take God and then make a golden calf and let's have some, some, some immorality and some idolatry. And God said, enough. And God punished it. And then there was, a, you know, one of the passages that's in here, just, there's some strange passages in the Old Testament, but God did not want them mixing with other nations. And there was this guy that t- takes this Midianite woman, and he's not married, and they find out about it, and this guy named Phineas takes a spear and goes into the chamber and takes the spear and plunges through both of them, and it was credited to him as righteousness because he did such a holy thing to stop the plague where 23 or 24,000 people are struck down because this plague breaks out of sexual immorality and how one person's sin is affecting the whole. That really happened. That's in Numbers 25. You can go home and read that and be like, woo. So as we come to the table here, this isn't a progressive supper. We don't get this and then we get some other, other thing from the world. This is a leave and a cleave. And we have to leave what the world is offering as good and acceptable. But the Bible's saying it's not good. It's not acceptable. You can't have it both ways. And so I want to remind us what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to as we come to the table. Titus 2, 11 to 14 says this. The grace of God has appeared, Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, training us or teaching us, coaching us, discipling us. The gospel is discipling us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's what we've been saved from, ungodliness and worldly passions, saved to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's what he saved us from. And then what he saved us to, it says, and he purified for himself a people for his own possession. That's what he saved us to, is to be a pure bride. You see, the image here is the idea of a husband and a wife. And because it ends with, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You know, the idea is like, if you got married and you said, but I'm gonna, I wanna keep talking to my old girlfriend. I'm gonna keep conversation with her. You know, we're gonna talk daily, maybe weekly, maybe just monthly. How's that gonna go with your spouse? got some old girlfriend that you're just keeping tabs with. They're not going to like that. And, and this is saying, you're provoking the Lord to jealousy. He's a godly husband, and he's jealous for his people, and he died to purify a people for himself, now who are zealous for good deeds. And so there is this idea that there's definitely something for the church to leave as we cleave. And to be warned from the people who were discued of old, of old, that were disqualified. And Paul's even himself is concerned that lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So how can we be 
the same today in that we have to recognize the Corinthian church is, is labeled as carnal. Is not the church today in America a church that's often carnal, drinking in lots of worldliness? And it's all in, right in front of us. There's so many things that are at our, our fingertips. And it's a call to my own life. I recognize there's so many things that you just say, ah, it's no big deal. And sometimes it's embarrassing. Somebody sent me a clip recently. It was one of my best friends. And my wife's watching it, and, and the F-bombs are dropping out. And I had to say, jeez, you know, my wife's, you know. And if she wasn't there, I'm thinking, what, I've just gone on watching this comic skit thing, you know. For each of us, take heed and let's humble ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Lord, you have made us for yourself, purified us, made us holy. Forgive us, Lord, for forgetting who we are, what we've been saved to. And Lord, help us to be aware, to be watchful of the spiritual warfare that's all around us. And to take heed, lest we think we stand, and to guard our hearts. Meet us now at your table as we endeavor to walk uprightly, Lord, and to please you. We thank you for meeting us here in Jesus' name. Amen.